Have you ever wondered, what's the deal with the Nobel Prizes? Who are all these people? And why should I care? I'm Maggie. And I'm Quinn. And this is Nobelis Oblige, the podcast where we rank and review all the Nobel laureates from 1901 until we run out of people. Join us as we make our way through some of the most influential scientists, writers, and leaders of the 20th and 21st centuries. In the process, we'll explore their work, their impact on society, their personal lives, and more. And, most importantly, we'll see if they have that erudite mystique, that academic rigor, that sense of Nobel S.O.B.L.E.G.E. Episode 8, Advancing French and Angry Flemings. Last episode, we mainly focused on Philip in Burgundy and Louis of Mala in Flanders. Today, we're going back to the center and are going to look at Philip the Bold's activities in the French court and his role in the fight against the English. We did cover some of Philip's activities in Paris last time, such as his co-option of court officials and his use of French influence to secure his wife. But today, I want to dive more into what he was actually doing on behalf of France. The years between the Treaty of Brétigny in 1360 and the resumption of hostilities in 1369 saw France in recovery. While John was technically still king for the first few years of this phase, much of the credit has to go to his sons. Charles V was a much more capable king than his father, and was not blinded by personal honor. Instead, he chose to do right by his kingdom. He never would lead his army into battle, personally, and while you could see this as an act of personal cowardice, I think it has much more to do with him seeing firsthand the devastating effects of a king captured in battle. Instead, French armies would primarily be led by Louis of Anjou, the second son of John the Good and a Breton general named Bertrand du Guesclin. Despite the peace between England and France, there was still much fighting to be done. The free companies were not only a menace to Burgundy, and Charles the Bad and his faction were still making trouble for the crown. In these campaigns, Philip may have had a comparatively minor role compared to his brother Louis or the Eagle of Brittany, Bertrand du Guesclin, but he did have a part to play in the events. I touched last episode on Philip's conflicts with the free companies, and honestly, just about all of his interactions with them happened in Burgundy. So this week, we'll take a closer look at his conflicts with the Navarrese. In 1364, Philip was charged with claiming a number of castles controlled by partisans of Charles the Bad. He made quick work with a handful of castles near Chartres, and, at least according to the chroniclers, was often the first one in the taken castle. I mean, he's got to prove his cognomen somehow. Philip's next tasks took him to Rouen, then Nevers, then Champagne. He was reportedly quite good at besieging castles, and was all around a capable commander. But after 1365, the threat from Charles the Bad seems to have lessened somewhat, so Philip focused his energies on exercising Burgundy of its free companies. But the situation changed in 1369. The past few years had seen the French and English fighting a proxy war in the Spanish Kingdom of Castile. The war was an expensive undertaking for both sides, but quite disastrous for the English. 
The French-backed Henry of Trastamara ended up victorious, and in gratitude to his French backers, set the Castilian fleet's sights on English coasts and English shipping. Furthermore, the Black Prince was forced to raise taxes on his Gascon subjects to pay debts that he incurred during the war. This led the people of Aquitaine to turn to the French king as their feudal overlord for assistance. However, under the terms of the Treaty of Brittany, this was no longer the case. Charles V was not going to let this opportunity go to waste. He knew that the French were in a relatively strong position, and the English were in a relatively weak one. So he declared that due to some legalistic loophole in the treaty, that the French crown technically maintained suzerainty over Aquitaine. Is it just me, or did the Valois just love finding legalistic loopholes? Charles then summoned the Black Prince to court, as was his right as king, and the Black Prince refused, as was his right under the treaty. Charles responded by seizing, at least in theory, Aquitaine from the English, and all of a sudden, the Hundred Years' War was back on. And it's war! And it's war! Get the forces! By the way, if you haven't seen the Marx Brothers movie, Duck Soup, I highly recommend it. But back to the story. Philip was given the all-important task of preparing an invasion of England, but during his preparations, the English prince, John of Gaunt, came through Calais with an invasion force of his own. As an aside, John of Gaunt was born in Ghent during his father's negotiations with Jacob van Artefelde, so he technically could be known as Jan van Ghent, but anyways, as Philip was the closest one to Calais at the time, he was sent to head off Jan van Ghent. Sorry, John of Gaunt. The two princes decided to sit down to do some princely and chivalric negotiations. Philip challenged John to fight a pitched battle to which John agreed with the stipulation that a committee of knights on both sides be able to choose the battlefield with four days' notice. An agreement was never reached, and eventually Philip, with his larger force I might add, withdrew, and John went on a chevouchee throughout Normandy. In Philip's defense, it has been suggested that he might not have had the funds to pay his soldiers, and that he also might have been given orders from his brother not to engage in battle. But if I may, this withdrawal was not very bold of him. That being said, it did not seem to harm his reputation either. I would also be remiss if I left you under the impression that Philip took part in this war purely out of patriotic duty. He may have been a proud French prince, but he was also always sure to profit from any venture that he was a part of. In this campaign, for example, Philip was able to draw a salary of 4,000 francs a month. To put this sum in perspective, the 1395 receipts from the county of Burgundy report that the Franche Comte paid the duke 10,000 francs that year. To be fair, this sum was supposed to be for the provisioning and pay of the soldiers under his command. But knowing Philip, I would be shocked if he didn't take a tidy sum for himself. Throughout the next few years, Philip took part in many of France's expeditions against the English. He was at the reconquest of Poitou, campaigned much in Aquitaine, where he was now receiving 6,000 francs, and made a few appearances in battles with the English allied Duke of Brittany. However, in all these conflicts, Philip was not leading the armies. That was either his brother Louis of Anjou, or the newly minted constable of France, Bertrand du Guesclin. In 1373, Philip once again faced down John of Gaunt in the midst of a chevouchee. While like last time, the two did not fight a pitched battle, this time the meeting did come to blows with Philip's forces haranguing John's, wearing them down, and making sure that John did not approach Paris. 
Philip's pursuit of and harassment of John's forces may not have been a great battle, but by the time that the English forces reached Bordeaux, they were exhausted and greatly diminished. At this point, both sides realized that the resumption of hostilities may not have been a good thing, and so the two kings agreed to send representatives to Bruges in an attempt to reassert the peace. In Bruges, we once again see Philip the Bold facing off against John of Gaunt. While John of Gaunt was certainly the better soldier of the two, Philip was the better diplomat. However, when two sides are so fundamentally opposed on an issue, there is only so much that a great diplomat can do. A one-year peace did manage to come out of Bruges, but a lasting peace was deemed impossible due to the issue of Aquitaine. The English demanded that the Treaty of Brittany be reinforced and that the French kings give up all feudal rights and overlordship and end their demands for homage for it. The French were willing to let the English stay in Aquitaine, at least for the time being, but refused to give up their claims of overlordship. As neither side was willing to compromise on the issue, a return to the fighting was all but assured. And so, in 1377, the Hundred Years' War came to blows yet again. This time saw Philip charged with taking Calais. If you recall from episode 3 when I said that Calais would be in English hands for 200 years, you can probably guess that this attempt was not successful. Calais was amongst the most heavily fortified places in Europe at the time, and without a dominant navy to assist, it was almost impossible to take. Philip did not have the cooperation of the French navy, and so had to be contented with his seizure of a handful of castles around the English foothold. Philip's next military contribution to the Hundred Years' War occurred in 1380. As had become standard practice, a son of Edward III had landed in Calais with a force and was posed to sweep through Normandy. This time, in order to reach Brittany to return the English-backed duke to power, Philip repeated his strategy against John of Gaunt and rather than facing the English in a pitched battle, shadowed and harassed the English forces. While the English did make it to Brittany, they were unable to make any serious advances into the duchy. One could argue that the strong walls of the Breton cities were more of a factor in the repulsion of the English, but some credit still should go to Philip's campaign of harassment. This Fabian strategy was the hallmark of Bertrand du Guesclin's tenure as Constable of France. Learning from the great defeats of the first phase of the war, French forces were now much more hesitant to seek battle, and thus may have been slightly less effective against English invasions and chevauchées, but were also not totally destroyed like at Crecy or Poitiers. However, when the French were on the offensive, they were still a force to be reckoned with. 1380 saw the deaths of both Charles V and Bertrand du Guesclin. While I have been mostly focusing on Philip's role in the war, I should note that du Guesclin's war efforts in Aquitaine and Brittany had really turned the tide against the English in the west. The 1370s saw France on the rise and England in retreat, but with the death of the two heads of the war effort, French momentum stalled. Luckily for the French, the English were stalling as well. 1377 had seen the death of Edward III, and his grandson and successor, the young Richard II, did not have the same martial spirit. The next three years saw Duguay-Clan pushing further and further into Aquitaine. This campaign saw over a hundred towns and castles taken from the English, and the English almost pushed back into the sea. However, after the death of the Constable of France, the next few years saw hostilities continue, but with no major changes in territory. 
The death of Charles V also saw Philip's role in the French government increase drastically. But before we get to that, let's take a look at what Philip was doing off the battlefield. I mentioned that Philip's great skills were not those of a great commander, but of a great diplomat and statesman. His military career was nothing to sneeze at, even if it wasn't the most impressive of the sons of John the Good. But what set Philip apart from the other lords of France was his ability to make friends and allies. Throughout his career, we see him sitting across a table with a rival and leaving the room with a friend. I've already brought up the talks at Bruges between the English and the French, but Philip was not negotiating from a purely French position. He was also the heir to Flanders, after all. To complicate the situation, Philip's marriage to Margaret had sparked a wave of English attacks on Flemish shipping. This caused the three members of Flanders, Ghent, Bruges, and Ypres, to attempt their own independent foreign policy with England. Philip did not want his future towns to be able to negotiate in an opposite direction as him, so he recognized that a middle ground was needed. While a permanent peace did not arise from Bruges, Philip was able to secure an agreement to protect commerce between England and Flanders if war broke out again. While this concession may have been at odds with French policy in general, it shows us that Philip was not going to squander an opportunity to protect his territories. It is in the 1370s that we see Philip begin to reach out and build partnerships in the Low Countries. Philip had observed that the kings of France and England and the German emperors had all been making attempts to control the Low Countries over the past few centuries. He also saw that the increased commercialization and independence of the area made it difficult for one of them to totally envelop the region, but easy for them to gain footholds. He thus concluded that an alliance of the major stakeholders of the Low Countries was the best way to maintain their independence and to grow their power. We'll get more into his involvement with the other rulers of the Low Countries, most notably Brabant and Hanno Holland Zealand, next time, but the schemes did start in this period. The 1370s also saw Philip beginning to shadow his father-in-law and learn about governing Flanders. The cities and classes of the county were constantly in opposition. To favor one too much risked alienating the others, and to punish one too harshly risked creating an opposing bloc. The decade between 1369 and 1379 saw Louis deftly playing these parties against each other, and in that time he was quite successful in keeping peace in Flanders, while simultaneously building up the power of commodal institutions. This decade also saw Philip embarking on goodwill tours and making friends. He visited the county every year this decade apart from 1373. Philip also made sure to visit Antwerp and Mechelen, as well as the neighboring county of Artois, which he would also inherit. Philip visited all the principal towns of Flanders and made sure to learn about the political aims of each of the principal parties in the county. Philip made attempts to wow the townspeople of Flanders by holding tournaments. He organized events in both Ghent and Bruges, and the tournament in Ghent was reported to be one of the grandest of the time. The Dukes of Anjou and Brabant were there, as well as the Counts of Flanders and Hanno Holland Zealand. As this tournament took place during the truce negotiated by Philip and John of Gaunt, the Dukes of Lancaster and Brittany also made appearances. The tournament was one of the great meetings of the ruling families and power brokers of the Low Countries, and behind all the show of splendor and chivalry, there was also serious diplomacy going on. But Philip also made sure to spend some time with the people of Flanders, as well as the magnates. 
Philip was, all his life really, an extravagant spender, and so he quickly made himself known to the merchants of Bruges as a stable customer. He also had a love of crossbows, and throughout his tours of the cities of Flanders, always made time to join the local arbalists for some target practice followed by a barrel of Burgundian wine. He wanted the people of Flanders to know that he was not merely a French prince who would facilitate their absorption into the larger whole, but an interested party who could advocate for them in Paris. Philip knew that if he came into Flanders as a foreign stranger when Louis of Malle died, the people of Flanders would not accept him, and that his entire reign would just be revolt after revolt. Philip's diplomacy was not only contained to the Low Countries. Last episode, I mentioned how after wars with the county of Burgundy and the county of Savoy, Philip was able to turn his erstwhile rivals into close friends and allies. Philip also reached north from Burgundy into the Duchy of Lorraine. He formed a close relationship with the Duke, and even sent some forces to help him in a conflict. Admittedly, this was also an attempt to get the free companies to leave Burgundy, but Philip sent proper French knights to Lorraine as well. Savoy did not mark the southern extent of Burgundian diplomacy, and the Franche Comte did not mark its eastern extent. Philip made contact with John Galeazzo, the heir of Visconti Milan, and the two struck up a friendship. He also took in Ladislas, an exiled Polish prince. Philip took a shine on the prince and sent him back to Poland with a Burgundian military escort. Unfortunately for the Burgundians, the only result of this expedition was Philip sending a great deal of money to Poland for the ransom of his knights. While Philip's place on the European stage at this point doesn't do too much to point at his future diplomatic successes, they do show that he was engaging in diplomacy more than as just a French prince or as a territorial lord. He was weaving a web of alliances both inside and outside France, and while he certainly used his proximity to the king as a bargaining chip, he wasn't merely negotiating for the king. Philip had ambitions of his own, and the 1370s saw him fostering relationships and laying the groundwork for his future diplomatic domination. The late 1370s decided to throw a curveball into the diplomatic scene. Pope Gregory XI had moved from Avignon back to Rome in 1376, despite efforts by Charles V and Philip to get him to stay. In 1378, he announced that he would move back to Avignon, but died before any action could be taken. The period before the popes moved from Rome to Avignon was marked with conflict between the pope's temporal authority over the papal states and the temporal lords of the region. The people of Rome had grown increasingly hostile to the church's control over them, and the great families of Rome always contested the papacy between themselves and menaced the pope if he were from another clan. All of this created an incredibly hostile environment for the popes, and in the early 1300s, they packed up and moved to Avignon. The time that the popes resided in Avignon saw exclusively French popes elected, and while the French king did not have direct authority over Avignon or the papacy, his influence was definitely felt. Still, though, the influence of the French king was noticeably less hostile than that of the Romans. So in 1378, the cardinals in Rome elected Urban VI, all the while being menaced by the Romans in a sort of elect-a-Roman-or-else kind of way. And of course, once the Roman Urban was elected, he immediately began to alienate the French clergy, who in turn packed up and went back to Avignon. Arguing that the election of Urban was illegitimate due to the Roman intimidation, the cardinals in Avignon elected their own pope and set off a schism that would last for 40 years. 
All of Western Christendom was split between the two popes, and most importantly for our story, while France as a whole supported Clement VII in Avignon, the people of Flanders supported Urban. Philip was most definitely a supporter of Clement, and immediately renewed his contact with Avignon, but we see in his dealings with the Flemings later on that he was not willing to alienate his rich and easily perturbed subjects over the issue. His brother Charles was less willing to compromise. The Pope's residence in Avignon was a powerful tool for the French crown, and the kings of France were intent on forcing anyone they could to follow them. The French response to Flemish adherence to Rome will resemble, at times, a crusade. Unfortunately for Philip the Bold and Louis of Mala, trouble was once again brewing in Ghent. The inciting incident here was not initially an issue of comital overreach, but one of city rivalry. Ghent had, for a while now, controlled all shipping on the Lee and Scheldt rivers. This allowed the city to control essentially all river trade coming from the rest of Europe. The most important of the goods being shipped on these rivers was grain from the southern territories of Hanau and Artois. Ghent's control of the river trade gave them staple rights over the imported grain. This both guaranteed them a steady food supply and allowed them to charge import taxes. Bruges was becoming quite tired of having to pay taxes to Ghent for food from Artois and Hanau, and so in 1379, the Brugeois began building a canal on the Lee to avoid Ghent's staple. The Gentinars responded as they often did and sent their militia to disrupt construction efforts. This naturally caused the Brugeois to go to the Count and complain. Louis of Mala, who had personally approved construction of the canal, decided to side with Bruges, and so arrested the leader of the Ghent militia. And it is here that Louis made the major mistake that caused the rest of his reign to be consumed by warfare. One of the major rights of the towns was that towns had the exclusive jurisdiction for all judicial affairs of their citizens. By arresting a burgher of Ghent, Louis had trampled all over Ghent's dignity. The Gentinars responded by murdering the commodal bailiff who had made the arrest, and burning down one of Louis's castles near the city. All of a sudden, Ghent and the Count were locked in a struggle of escalating violence. The crux of the issue was that despite his constant assurances to the cities that he wasn't trying to trample their rights, Louis of Mala had in fact been trying to trample all over their rights. It wasn't brazen, or out in the open, but for those with an eye for such things, there were clues that could be picked up upon. Louis had spent his career working to increase the power of the commodal office. He had appointed his own officials, such as the unlucky bailiff, tasked with overseeing city magistracies and councils, and had worked within the cities to empower less radical parties. His favoring of Bruges, controlled in large part by the merchants and patricians, over Ghent, controlled by the weavers and other guildsmen, can be seen within this framework. Whenever a case of overlapping jurisdiction arose, he always ruled in his favor, and he had spent many years building up the judicial power of the commodal court. His arrest of the Ghent militia leader was thus not an isolated incident, but the latest in an inching path towards subjugation at least according to the always rilesome weavers of Ghent. When Ghent flared into open revolt, the lower classes of many of the other cities of Flanders decided to join in. They too had seen Louis's attempts to rein in their rights, and they were not willing to give up the political gains that they had made over the century. Wherever the Ghent militia went, they would install the weavers, always the most radical of the guilds, in the governments. 
Between local revolt and Gentanar militia might, almost the whole county was in revolt. Before long, the cities of Odenard and Dendermond were the only places in Flanders still loyal to the count. At the request of Louis's mother, Margaret of Artois, Philip was brought in to mediate between the rebels and Louis. At Tournai, Philip negotiated daily for a month straight, until finally a peace was reached. There would be a general pardon, and the privileges of the towns would be reasserted. Additionally, the three members of Flanders, Ghent, Bruges, and Ypres, would be given the right to investigate and punish comital officials who overstepped their bounds. While this agreement was a hit to Louis's power, it did manage to save his position. Philip may have now stood to inherit a slightly weaker comital office from his father-in-law, but he would not be inheriting anarchy, and his role in the negotiations further extended the goodwill that he held in the cities of Flanders. But, unfortunately for all involved, the peace did not last a year. Fortunately for Louis, violence really only re-erupted in Ghent. He had always had a good degree of control over Ypres, at least compared to the other major cities, and the patricians and merchants that usually held sway in Bruges tended to feel naturally closer to the Count than to the weavers of Ghent. Additionally, it seemed to the Brugeois and Ypres that this rebellion really was only for the benefit of Ghent, and seeing how it started with the Gentinars destroying a Brugeois project actively harmful to Bruges. So while Bruges and Ypres did join in the Second Rebellion at first, they were easily brought back into line by Louis and his allies within the cities when the truce began to break down. Ghent would be a different story. And so, despite all the goodwill that Philip had generated on his earlier tours of the county, when he finally assumed the position of count, he would be faced with the revolt that his father-in-law had spent his career trying to avoid. Next time, we will continue in Flanders as we see the Ghent War crescendo and see Philip inherit a county in chaos. We will also catch up with the events in France with the death of Charles V and Philip's role on the Regency Council. But before we go, I'd like to bid farewell to Charles the Bad. The 1370s saw Charles embroiled in many plots and intrigues, including, but not limited to, attempting to poison King Charles V twice, entering into negotiations with England, using those negotiations with England to try and leverage a better deal with France, raising an army from the free companies and subsequently losing control of that army, and re-entering into negotiations with England. In waffling back and forth between England and France so much, the King of Navarre had utterly pissed off the French king, and while he had not alienated the English quite as much, he had put himself in a position where they were less than enthused to come to his aid. As Jonathan Sumption puts it, quote, Charles of Navarre was profoundly hated at the Hotel Saint-Paul, the royal residence, and too far away to need appeasing. The hatred was fully reciprocated. Furthermore, quote, As far as the English were concerned, Charles of Navarre was an untrustworthy politician who had double-crossed them several times, but he possessed important harbors in Lower Normandy, which made him worth courting despite the risks and frustrations involved. Charles was unable to completely focus on France, as Navarre was at war with Castile, led by the French-backed Henry of Trastamara, and by 1377, Charles was finally willing to actually ally with the English for assistance. Unfortunately for Charles the Bad, some of his messengers were captured, and plans for his campaigns with the English in Spain, 
but more importantly his plans to hand over several Norman castles to the English, fell into the hands of Charles V. Charles V needed no further provocation. He immediately began an operation to seize all of Charles the Bad's remaining possessions in Normandy. This campaign was so ad hoc that Philip the Bold, who accompanied it, had to borrow a horse from the royal stables. Charles the Bad tried to fight back from Navarre, but he had already sent many of his forces to Normandy in anticipation of linking up with the English. His forces in the north were outmatched by Charles V's army, and his forces in the south were outmatched by Castile and the French Count of Foix. Unfortunately for Charles the Bad, the English were also caught unprepared by the rapid French invasion. Charles lost all of his Norman possessions, and in 1379 he was forced to make peace with Castile. He maintained control of Navarre, but his days as a power broker in France were over. The last days of Charles the Bad were spent in misery and illness, and the story of his death is too good not to include here. It is a little macabre, so if you don't want to hear it, I'll see you next episode. Charles the Bad suffered from some sort of disease that made his skin extremely irritable. To soothe this, his doctor had him wrapped in cloth soaked with brandy and tied in a sack. He then was placed next to a pan of hot coals to warm him, and I think you might know where this goes from here. One night, he was placed a little too close to the coals, and a spark leapt out, and the alcohol-infused sack was set ablaze. Thus, the wily king of Navarre was burnt alive in his palace. He died alone, as all of his servants fled, trying to escape the royal inferno. What a way to say farewell to everyone's favorite late medieval chaos agent. Thank you so much for listening. If you like the show, I would really appreciate it if you would rate and review it on Apple Podcasts or your platform of choice and tell your friends about it. If you want to keep up with the show, you can follow me at twitter.com slash valoisburgundy or find Grand Dukes of the West on Facebook. You can also email me at granddukesofthewest at gmail.com and check out the podcast website at granddukesofthewest.com.